The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Just as folks come back in, uh, this past weekend, our youth and many of you helped volunteer to help serve 9th Street Mission this week, and it was awesome to see uh, this opportunity to, to minister to folks in need in our own community, serving them food and serving them the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ, and it was a great joy to be a part of that. Thank you for all who helped and served to make that happen, and uh, we look forward to, Lord willing, continuing to serve that community here in Green Bay. Um, I want to start with a question. How much does God care about your joy? How much does the God of the entire universe who created all things, who sustains all things, care that your heart, your heart, is joyful? I want to start by reading some passages to you this morning. I just typed in the word rejoice in my Bible search software, and it came up with over 150 hits. But I want to read to you some of them and see how throughout the whole Bible, the joy of our heart is important to the Lord. Deuteronomy 12, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters. First Chronicles 16, Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Nehemiah 12, And they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Psalm 40, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love you, your salvation, say continually, great is the Lord. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Joel 2, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Habakkuk 3, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. You get to the New Testament and it continues. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Romans 12, rejoice in hope. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Revelations 19, at the end of time, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made made herself ready. God cares tremendously about the joy of your heart. If you would please open up to Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing through the book of Philippians. It is page 981 in the Red Bible. If you're in the Children's Bible, it is page 1454. We see that this theme of rejoicing in joy continues through the book of Philippians. In Philippians 1.18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Philippians 2.17. 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And finally, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The Lord cares deeply about the joy of your heart. Let's read together today's passage. Philippians chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you again is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word, as we come to this great summary of the gospel and of Paul's faith, make our joy abound. Our hearts are so distracted by fickle things, Lord God. Make our joy abound. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, as we were studying this text in our community group, we asked the question, what is the difference between happiness and joy? And it's actually a more difficult question than you might think. If you look in the dictionary, the definition of happiness, you look up the definition of joy, the definitions are actually very similar. You probably couldn't tell the difference between the two. And yet we know that there is a difference between happiness and joy. And it's really hard to put verbiage to the difference between those two. But I looked out in the blogosphere, and I found a website that I thought was very helpful in articulating the difference between joy and happiness. It's called differencebetween.net. And it's not necessarily a Christian website, but I thought that it was very helpful in thinking about the difference between happiness and joy. It says this, there's a couple things. It says, happiness is simply the state of being happy. Happiness is a result of something that is outside of you and gained by observing or doing that particular thing. But joy, joy comes 
from the inner self of a person and is connecting with the source of life within you. It's caused by something really exceptional and satisfying. Happiness may be momentary and it is a result of short-term contentment, but joy being related to the inner self is long-lasting. Happiness simply pleases a person while joy brings warmth to a person's heart and brings contentment to one's heart. And then they listed out kind of a summary of the difference between joy and happiness. And it's written up here. They say happiness is caused by luck, good fortune, and other worldly pleasures, whereas joy is caused by overall happiness and soul-satisfying incident. Happiness is more momentary while joy is long-lasting. Happiness merely pleases a person while joy warms a person's heart. And happiness mostly comes from outside things, and it is gained by observing or doing a particular thing. On the other hand, joy lies within a person. We saw time and time again, God calls us to joy, to express that joy through rejoicing. And as we hear that command, we might think, God doesn't know what I'm going through. God doesn't know how difficult my life is. God doesn't know what I have to put up with on a daily basis. Remember who's writing this letter. It's the Apostle Paul. He's in prison, chained to Roman soldiers, awaiting execution. In the course of his ministry, he has been whipped. He has been beaten. He has been left for dead. And yet, although many of those times are not happy, He commands us once again to rejoice. And he's writing to the Philippians. The Philippians, they had undergone division in the church. They were experiencing poverty, many of them, not knowing where they would get their next meal. And yet he writes to them, rejoice. We live in a broken world. And we all face very sad situations that we rightly grieve over. The doctor tells us they cannot take away our pain. The kids are rebellious and we want to pull our hair out. We are living paycheck to paycheck. Our marriage is in the dumps. Someone else has abused you physically or emotionally. All of these are sad situations and they rightly grieve us. But none of them need to steal your joy. God offers us this morning a joy that is unshakable by any circumstance that you will ever face in your entire life. And so we're going to look at this joy. And there are two questions I want to ask and I want to look at. The first question is this, what steals joy? And the second, what sustains joy? If we are called to joy, what steals our joy and what sustains joy? What steals it, what sustains it? First, let's look at what steals joy. In this passage, we get two examples of what steals joy. And whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious, it is the same thing that steals our joy, which is man-centered religion. Everybody is religious, whether they consider it or not. And what steals our joy is man-centered religion. We see it first in the dogs, not the Georgia Bulldogs, but what he calls the dogs. He says, look out for those dogs. The apostle Paul is using a provocative term here. Dogs was a term that, that Jews and Jewish leaders would use of Gentiles, people who are, were not Jews. And they would describe them as dogs, saying that they are worthless, that they're worth nothing, they don't deserve anything. And yet here Paul is saying that those Jewish leaders are those dogs. 
He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Evidently, some Jewish Christian teachers had infiltrated the church. And they said, yeah, Jesus is a really good thing, but you need more than Jesus. You need to apply the circumcision of the Old Testament. You need to obey the Old Testament law, and then you can be secure in your salvation. Then you can know that God truly accepts you as you are. This is a man-centered religion in which they do this and have assurance that you are loved by God. This happens many times in religious practices today, whether it be baptism or walking the aisle or going through confirmation class or speaking in tongues or church membership, whatever it might be. Many times churches elevate these things from servants to masters and they say, look to these things for the assurance of your salvation. Now, these practices aren't necessarily wrong. Some of them are even commanded by God and scripture to do. But if these rituals are the object of our faith, if they are a program, a checklist for us to gain assurance of our salvation, they produce a false confidence and they give us a false focus. They focus us not on Christ, but they focus us on ourselves and on our actions. So we see it in the dogs, but we also see this man-centered theology in the old Paul and the apostle before he was an apostle. Paul describes his own history of having man-centered religion, starting in verse 4. You can read along with me. He says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. There it is. You hear it? The man-centered religion. Confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, just like the Old Testament said to do. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a purebred in the faith. As to the law of Pharisee, the most conservative Bible-believing branch of Judaism. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was religiously active. In his faith. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was a very moral person. Paul says, you know what? If you want to compare religious resumes, let's do it. Because you know what? I outdo you. I outdo you. You look to all of these things for your confidence and your joy and your support. I have all of them. And they were worthless. They meant nothing. He continues, he says this, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Those things, those accolades, those religious practices and devotions, that resume that Paul had built, that people admired, that he put his confidence in, now he counts as a loss. Why is it a loss? Because of those things pointing Paul to Christ, they pointed him to himself. And he put confidence in his own flesh. It goes on, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, we so frequently talk about needing to repent of our sins to gain Christ, which is absolutely true. But we also have to repent of our righteousness. 
We have to repent of our religious resume that we put up before God and say, look, God, look what I have done for you. Am I a good person? Am I not an acceptable person? Because all of these things I have done. You know, it's amazing. As I look at Paul's resume, it's amazing how similar it is to my own resume. You know, I was raised in a house. I was baptized as a little baby. We went to church every Sunday, probably 50 to 52 Sundays a year. We were always in church. I was confirmed in second grade. I started taking communion. On Saturdays through elementary school, I went to Saturday school, and I hated it. And the reason why I did all these things is because I thought it gave me brownie points with God. I thought that it made me acceptable to God. And all that they did was point me back to myself. It made me my own savior. And that type of religion, that man-centered religion, is absolutely joyless. Paul calls his religious achievements rubbish. Literally translated, dung. Isaiah 64, 6 says the same thing. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts, not unrighteous acts, but righteous acts, are like filthy rags. I won't translate that for you. But they are like filthy rags. Many of you spend much of your time potentially building your religious pedigree. Maybe you're here today to build on it. That if you come to church, then God will bless you and God will accept you and God will love you because you have come to church. But you shouldn't waste your time because that is not what makes us acceptable to God. God does not accept you because of your church attendance. He doesn't accept you because you went on a mission trip when you were 15. God doesn't accept you because you tithe or because you help in children's church. You are to put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in your religious activities. All of those are good things and important things, but there is no confidence in that in our relationship with God. Our confidence must be in one place, in one place alone. Our confidence must be in Christ. This is gospel math. Jesus plus anything. Good works, religious activity, whatever it might be, Jesus plus anything leads to pride and despair. But Jesus plus nothing leads to humility and untouchable joy. You might be here saying, you know, my religion is not man-centered. I am Christ-centered in my theology. That might be even why you have come to Jacob's well. You said this church says it is a gospel-centered church, a Christ-proclaiming church. That's why I'm here, because my theology is Christ-centered. And yet you know that you come here and you're missing joy. But joy is not in the depth of your heart. And the reason for that is because although you might be Christ-centered in your mind, you can be very man-centered in your heart. Even though you can give all the right answers in your head of what it means to have Jesus as central to your life, your heart knows very little of it. This past week, as I was looking at this passage, I was very convicted about, even though in my intellect I am very Christ-centered in my theology, in my heart I am so man-centered, it is horrible. This past Wednesday, this is how God kind of revealed it to me. This past Wednesday, my wife took the kids to school and I was at home working, and then they came home. 
And when they came home, my attitude changed really drastically, and I just became kind of grumpy. You know, I was short and to the point. I didn't yell or scream or anything like that, but, you know, I just used the word yes, no, and fine, right? Yes, no, and fine over and over again. Whatever she asked, yes, no, fine, things like that. The rest of the night, just short and to the point. Well, the next day I realized, you know what? I need to repent to my wife. I need to ask her for, to forgive me for being short with her, to not, for not loving her. And so I remember being in my car thinking about, I need to go home and apologize to my wife. And it was probably one of the most painful things I've experienced in my life. Everything in me did not want to go home and repent to her. Everything in me wanted to go home and keep my pride. For me, it felt like, taking a river and trying to make it flow in the other direction. It was absolutely painful. And in that moment, what I discovered as I studied this text, that my inability, my struggle to repent to my wife is because even though in my head I'm Christ-centered, in my heart I am man-centered. And I did not want to undermine my reputation. I didn't want to undermine my ability to say later, I told you so. I wanted to keep me as the foundation of my life and repenting attacks that foundation. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. You see, if Christ is central, not only in your head, but also in your heart, it is easy to repent because it never attacks the foundation of who you are and where your joy is placed. Although we are Christ-centered in our head, we can be man-centered in our hearts. And I think one way we see that is by seeing our inability or our resistance to repent to other people because we are trying to build a resume for ourselves. And so Christ-centered faith frees us to repent, knowing that our value and worth and our need for love is not fulfilled in ourselves, but completely in Jesus Christ. And so what steals man's joy? Man-centered religion. Now, what sustains our joy? I've already alluded to this, but what sustains our joy is Christ-centered religion. Scripture talks about this as true religion. That Christ is the center of our religion, not only in our salvation, but also during our life and at the end. That Christ is central at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. Paul actually lays this out for us in these in three verses. He talks about Christ being central to our justification, to our sanctification, and to our glorification. And this is absolutely critical for the joy that God has called us to rejoice in. And so I want to walk through it, and I'll try to explain them as we go. First, Christ-centered justification. Justification, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but just as a refresher, justification is being declared righteous before God. It's being acceptable before God. And what God desires, what God demands from us is 100% righteousness. Not 50%, not 60%, not 99%, but 100% sinlessness. And so Paul says here in verse 8, you can read with me. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and be found in him, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There are two ways to attain righteousness before God. There are two ways to be accepted before God. The first way 
is perfect obedience to God's law. Absolute sinlessness. To obey the Ten Commandments and all of God's commandments every day of your life for every second. That is one way to attain God's acceptance. This is how Jesus Christ attained God's acceptance, was through perfect obedience. But then there's the rest of us. And we need another way. And what we are told here is that God provided another way. Another way to attain the righteousness God requires is through faith in Christ, being found in Christ, that Jesus has not only taken away the penalty for our sin, but Jesus has given to us his righteousness so that when the God of the universe looks upon you and looks upon me, he does not see your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. This past Friday... I think I have a picture up here. This past Friday, uh, we celebrated Reformation Day. How many of you celebrate Reformation Day? That's what it is, right? Reformation Day. And for Reformation Day, we go and get candy. It's yummy. That's what Martin Luther did. And, um, but as you look at this picture, you're not sure who's under that because they're covered in the clothing of stormtrooperness, Right? We are told that we are clothed, not in this silly stuff, but that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at you, when God looks at you, do you know what he sees? He sees his favorite son. He sees his favorite son when he looks upon you. But it's only by faith. It's by being found in him and clothed in his righteousness. You know, it's so interesting because we're talking about rejoicing in Christ. And yet throughout scripture, we read that the Lord rejoices over you with singing because you are his favorite child. If you are in Christ, we're all tied, but you are his favorite child in Christ. And so that is Christ centered justification. Now, many times we know that we are saved by grace and it is a great joy. I don't know if for you there was a moment, if you know Christ, in which you were saved, in which there was this great joy that you came to know Christ, but that joy has slowly ebbed away, and it has become duty, and has become boring. And what we learn here is for Christ-exalting, soul-saturating joy, we continue with sanctification, not focused on ourselves, but focused on Christ. And so if justification is being declared righteous before God, sanctification is becoming righteous before God, is becoming who you have already been declared in Christ. You've been declared righteous, and so is the process of becoming like Jesus and becoming righteous. And so Paul tells us this, and I'm going to start in verse 9, but we're going to look at verse 10. He says, And be found in him, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then Paul moves from justification into sanctification. Verse 10, he says, That I may know him, know Christ. Let me pause there. You know, as I first read this in verse 10, it was very confusing. What does Paul mean that he wants to know Christ? Doesn't Paul already know Christ? I mean, Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus. Jesus taught Paul the gospel. That's why he's called an apostle. Even just a few verses earlier in verse 8, Paul says that he considers everything a loss 
of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so Paul knows Christ. And so what does he mean when he says here that he wants to know Christ? You see, Paul knows Christ. And it makes Paul want to know Christ all the more. Paul has tasted the goodness and the glory and the wonder and the joy of Jesus. And it makes Paul hunger and thirst for more. My wife loves to take the kids to Costco for lunchtime. And she takes the kids to Costco. They love going to Costco because there are samples, right? How many of you like samples here? You like samples? Okay. Do you know the purpose of samples? It's to make you buy the product. It's to make you want more, right? It is a taste. And when it is good and it is yummy, they want you to use the product. They want you to go further. They want you to take more of it. The the Jesus that we experience in salvation, while he is ours in full, it is a taste. And as we taste the goodness of our Savior, it should make us hunger for him all the more. Paul's ambition has changed. Those things that shine so brightly in the world's eyes, his religious resume now shine so dimly for him. His ambition, to, his ambition used to be himself and his religious activities, but now his all-consuming ambition is to know Christ all the more. Paul knew Jesus more than any of us know, have seen him or heard him verbally. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus preached him, and yet he wanted to know Jesus even more. I have a friend this week who told me about his, his relationship with his dad, and he said that his dad used to read the Bible, but finally just gave up and said, you know what, I know enough about this. I'm done with it. I don't need to know anymore. And yet here is Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, saying, I know Christ, but I want to know Christ all the more. Have you delighted in knowing Jesus? One evidence is that you want to know him more. You cannot say, I trusted in Jesus when I was younger, but now I'm fine. Now I'm not interested in him. Such a statement questions whether you have ever known the goodness and the joy of Christ in the first place. Sanctification is joy if and only if Jesus is your magnificent obsession. Seek to know him more, to cherish him more, and to enjoy him more. C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian writer, says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he ends by saying, we are far too easily pleased. Our problem with growing in holiness, our problem with sanctification is not that we want pleasure too much. is that we don't want it enough. You see, the greatest joy and the greatest pleasure is found in Jesus Christ. And he is to be our all-consuming greatest pleasure, our magnificent obsession in this life. And if he is that, then you will have a joy that is untouchable. And so we see Christ-centered justification, Christ-centered sanctification. And finally, oh wait, I'm sorry, I missed a part. I need to go back. In Christ-centered sanctification, there's more. Verse 10, he says, And I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Again, 
Paul knows the power of the resurrection. He, he was born again. He was blinded. He was given sight. He knows the power of the resurrection. But here Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection time and time again in my fight against sin. Paul knows that the resurrection of Jesus is not simply something we should intellectually agree with, but the resurrection is something that we should long to experience day after day after day as we fight against sin and pursue holiness. This past week, I was struck by this passage, and even in my own time of prayer, thinking, Lord, how weak I am against sin and how I need to know the power of the resurrection over sin. I need to know the power of the resurrection over my bad attitudes. I need to know the power of the resurrection over materialism. I need to know the power of the resurrection over lust, over pride, over unforgiveness, over greed, over jealousy. I need to know the power of the resurrection because the only thing that can change this hard heart is the power that raised a man from the dead. And so Paul says that we shouldn't remain passive in our pursuit of Christ But knowing Christ should make us pursue him all the more to know him and to know the power of his resurrection. It is Christ-centered, Christ-saturated sanctification. Finally, Christ-centered glorification. Glorification is simply being with God when we die and go to heaven. Verse 11, Paul says that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you read this verse in isolation, it might seem that Paul was uncertain about his resurrection or that it was contingent on his suffering. But just later in verse 20, Paul talks about his citizenship is in heaven, that we will be transformed from this lowly body to a glorious body. And he is certain of his glorification. But here Paul says that I may by any means possible. And so what he's talking about is he says that by any means possible, whether by Roman execution, by sickness, or by falling off a cliff, that he may attain or secure the resurrection of the dead. You know, it's amazing. When Jesus matters to you more than anything else, this changes the way you view everything else. It changes the way you view suffering. You pray, Lord, do not waste this suffering. Make it make me love you more. Make it make me more like Jesus. It changes the way we view our worldly accolades and our righteousness. They're dung. It even changes the way we view death. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In the third century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote to his friend Donatus. And he said this, he goes, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. that have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They're masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them. Why is death gain for the believer? Because Jesus isn't just our ticket to heaven. Jesus is our joy in heaven. Jesus is not just the means to an end. To get to heaven where it's better than Jesus. Jesus is the goal of our salvation. That we might know him and enjoy him and worship him for all eternity. And so we see the secret to joy-saturated life is a Christ-centered religion. Both in our salvation and in our sanctification and in our glorification. Let me end with this. Everyone here was created to need joy. 
Everyone here was created to long for joy. Just like you long for food or for water or for sleep, you were created to long for joy. Many men, all men throughout history have searched for joy. Many of those men are very successful in the world's eyes. And yet they could not find joy. There's a couple here, Voltaire, who pursued joy through opposing religion and exalting himself, wrote, I wish I had never been born. Lord Byron lived a life of self-pleasure, seeking joy in everything that the world had to offer. And yet he wrote, the worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Lord Baconsfield saw joy in positions of fame, and he had them. And yet he wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Alexander the Great, the great military general who had great military glory and conquered most of the world, sat in his tent and wept, saying, there are no more worlds to conquer. And finally, J. Gold, the American millionaire, sought pleasure by gaining riches and wealth and money. And yet, as he was dying, said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. In this world, in infomercials and commercials, whatever it might be, you are told if you want joy, focus everything on yourself. Accumulate that you might surround yourself with good things, with happy things that might make you joyful. But time and again, it leaves people empty, destitute, and despairing. And that's why they go to buy more. You know, it's so interesting in this passage because Paul lays out this cost-benefit analysis. He, he lists out in one column all of his accolades, everything he had done religiously. And then in the other column, he has just one thing. And that one thing is Jesus. And he said, indeed, I count everything a loss. Everything in this column is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you say, I am a joyless human being, it's because you are looking to the wrong column for your joy. These things can make you happy, but they cannot give you the joy. There is only one thing and one thing alone that can give you joy. Today, God is offering you unparalleled, unprecedented, unending, unrelenting, unimaginable, uncomprehendable joy. And there's only one place to find it. There's only one place joy can conquer your heart. And joy is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you that we go seeking joy in so many silly areas, Lord when it is offered to us right here with Jesus. There is nothing we have to do it, but accept it by faith, God. And Lord, I pray for those here today who do not know the joy of Christ, that they would know the joy of Christ for the first time, that they would cherish and pursue him. Lord, for those here who have known you, may they grow to know you more. May they know the power of your resurrection. Lord, may the joy return to their hard hearts as they remember that the great joy of their life is not everything that they have or everything that they've done, but the joy, the only sustaining joy is your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn to your table, remind us that for the joy set before him, for the joy of gaining us,
Christ died on our behalf, Lord. Let these not be common to us. Let them not just be bread and wine, but let them be the body and blood of Christ to nourish us spiritually in our fight for joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.